0: and worth. That's response one. Response two, how much more so then also his people? How much more so those whom he has set his affection upon in his son and guided and indwelled through his spirit? How much more so? How much more so indeed? A great quote here by uh, John Piper uh, in a collection of little bios that he wrote some time ago. He starts it off with this. God ordains that we gaze on his glory, dimly mirrored in the ministry of his flawed servants. He intends for us to consider their lives and peer through the imperfections of their faith and behold the beauty of their God. So you see, there's actually tremendous a potential for tremendous benefit in this if we do it in the right way with the right spirit and have but the humility to hear and the humility and the willingness to to learn. Okay, so that's why to consider any mortal human being in this context. Well, why Luther? Right? I mean, there's there's a lot of different... if, If that be true, then there's a lot of different... It opens the door for a lot of different individuals, men and women, through the years that we could look at. Why Martin Luther? I'll say it simply this way. Because of what he was about because of what he was about, and by that I mean two things. One, the supremacy of God's grace. And two, the authority of God's word. The supremacy of God's grace and the authority of God's word. Now, if this was two sermons, we'd do both of those. This is only one, so we're honing in on the second of the two. The, the authority of God's Word, or as the Reformers came to refer to this as Sola Scriptura. I'll uh, unpack that as we go. If you've got a Bible, I ask you to now turn with me uh, to 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 34. This is a few books uh, left of the Psalms, I'll say. If you're trying to find it you know, and and, and you don't want to bother with your table of contents, the Psalms form the heart of the Bible. So open it up. Right there is the middle, literally. And you head a few books to the left. You have a series of first and second's. 1 and 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Kings, 1 and 2 Chronicles. Okay? We are in 2 Chronicles 34. 2 Chronicles 34, right there towards the very end uh, of uh, this, this great book, this uh, second part of what the Chronicler gives to us here. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, starting in verse 1, I'm just going to read down through verse 21. 2 Chronicles chapter 34, starting in verse 1, on through verse 21. Hear now God's word. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father, and in the twelfth year he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places, the Asherim and the carved and metal images, and they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in pieces the Asherim and the carved and metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins, all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maaseiah the governor of the city, and Joah, the son of Joahaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah the high priest and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timbers for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites, the sons of Merari and Zechariah and Meshulam, of the sons of the Clothites, to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skilled with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. And Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan the secretary told the king, Hilkiah the priest has given me a book. And Shaphan read it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam the son of Shaphan, Abdon the son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord. For me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah, concerning the words of the book that has been found, for great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us, because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. Well, we need to pray, and I'm going to do that by reading to you and praying through, leading you, in this prayer from Martin Luther so many years ago. Would you bow your heads? Eternal God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, give us your Holy Spirit who writes the preached words into our hearts. May we receive and believe it and be cheered and comforted by it in eternity. Glorify your word in our hearts and make it so bright and warm that we find pleasure in it. Through your Holy Spirit, think what is right and by your power fulfill the word for the sake of Jesus Christ, your Son. Our Lord. Amen. Well, again, it is the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. Why should you care? Why should you care? I'm going to try and answer that in just a very quick summary sort of fashion, just looking at, a, at a, a four or five categories. First, politics. Consider that through the Protestant Reformation and all that was happening, uh, in the course of those events. The bond, that the tight bond that existed between the church and the state was loosened, allowing for freeing up the possibility of the proliferation of democracy. That's politics. The family, because of these events and the flow of these events, the family, marriage, was no longer deemed to be a second-tier thing before the living God. Culture. Every man, woman, and child is to understand that they are, live their lives quorum Deo, before the face of God, which means there is no such thing as a division, as a wall between sacred and secular. None whatsoever. Politics, family, culture, the church. A reexamination of the sacraments, of the priesthood, of the role of the laity, of music of the Word and preaching. I just gave you a very thin, fast thumbnail sketch. Do you understand, if you really heard what I was just saying, in those broad categories and the significance of all of that, that Western civilization, you would not recognize it today without the impact of the Protestant Reformation. And at the center of it all, at, at the risk of oversimplifying it, and I know I'm maybe going off the ledge here, there, but that the center of it all, and maybe even you could say at the beginning of it all, loosely, was this man we know today as Martin Luther. Now, where do you start with Martin Luther? So many different things that could be said uh, of, of this man. We could talk of his courage, we could speak of, of his marriage to Katharina von Bora, the former nun, mm. and the former monk. That created a, a bit of a stir. A bit of of a scandal, to to say the least. Luther's writings on prayer, I alluded to this last week. Um, So rich, so profound, so simple, so beautiful. His theology, what he wrote of the, the difference, the distinction between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross, so much we could say about that. So very much, very much we could say about that. The, the solas, what the Reformers referred to as the solas of the Reformation. Well, we know as the solas of the Reformation. The, the idea, the, the reality, not just the idea, but the reality that we can be, are, are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Luther gave himself. He could not speak enough about these things and these truths because they make such a profound difference in our lives. But you understand the foundation of all of that? The foundation stone out of all of that was another sola. Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone as our one true ultimate authority in faith and in in life. Now this was not a new idea. This was something very, very old. This was not an innovation. Uh, It was a rediscovery. Indeed, a sweet recovery. In fact, I think it's, it's no stretch. We, we see inklings of it in our text from, in 2 Chronicles. The recovery of the Scriptures is a gift of God's grace. The recovery of the Scriptures is a gift of God's grace, and it ought to be gladly received as such. And I want to consider that from three angles here this morning. Uh, looking at our text, seeing how it plays itself out, in the life of Martin Luther and then considering how does that flow into to our lives uh, today three different things first this this re- the reality and the necessity of this recovery of the scriptures we see it by by God's means it is a gift of his grace it's of God's news which of its in and of itself speaks of his grace and again it is through the word the recovery of that news takes place through the Word. Unpack that as we go. First, the first thing, the recovery of the Word by God's means. Back to Second Chronicles 34. Through whom did this happen? Humanly speaking, through whom did this happen? Good King Josiah. Good young King uh, Josiah. What well, do we know of Josiah? He was uh, one of the best. Uh, it was, he was a good king there in the line of Judah. Really one of the best, one of the, the greatest in some respects. You could say it was a, it's a sensible thing. From an historical perspective, it's a sensible thing that God would so choose to use such a king as this. When you think about it, he comes from such a godly lineage, right? You see that there in in verse 2, there in uh, chapter 34, verse 2, where we read, And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, and walked in the ways of David his father, and he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. So he comes from this godly lineage, generations back, David, Solomon, right? He also has a godly example in his great-grandfather, King Hezekiah, who in his courage moved forward and took the people forward in in reform and stood up against the the tide of his enemies and all the pressures therein. So in, in some sense you can say that Josiah being used in the way that he was, it's a sensible thing, not a surprising thing, but actually it's a very surprising thing. When you consider the ungodly influence is much closer than his great-granddaddy. You have King Manasseh, his grandfather, and his father, just right after that, in the generation right preceding that, King Ammon, both of whom are described in truncated ways as having done evil in the sight of the Lord. Those are his models. This is what has been exemplified as to what a godly king looks like. These two guys in his living memory. King Josiah. And then you consider the external pressures that he is facing. The political turmoil of the time. The Assyrian Empire is on the decline. The Babylonian Empire is on the rise. And the Egyptian Empire is trying to finagle a way to fill the gap. Coming in. And there's little Judah sitting right in the middle of it all. And yet, God's chosen means for that hour was young King Josiah. He was not a likely candidate. And centuries later, neither was Martin Luther. In no way at all. Now, that at the risk of offending a, an attorney or two, you need to know that early on, Luther's career track record was, in fact, to become an attorney, a lawyer. That got blown up in the summer of 1505, almost literally, when Luther was caught on horseback on a hillside in a lightning storm. And he cried out, Help! Saint Anne! I will become a monk. Who does he cry out to? To Jesus? No. A woman, a long-dead saint? This is the context in which Luther's coming up. And he says, making this bargain with God through this saint, the end run to get to Jesus, to get to the Father. He says, if you save me, and I'll do a good thing. Have mercy on me. You see the works mentality here. From the start, I'll become a monk because that's the idea of the time. This is the way you really love and obey Jesus as you enter the monastery or the convent. And that's where Luther is for the next 12 years, living in a monastery as a priest, a Catholic priest, teaching the very doctrines he will later refute. It's in that context that he then nails the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door. He is not a likely candidate right from the start, nor later, nor does he become... This is a critical point. Nor does he become a likely candidate. You know, like, like he's so refined and so much more godly, so much more like Jesus, that oh now we can say he's a likely means. No. Not in any way at all. And, and we talked about this in the last hour, just real quickly, in his sad involvement in misinformed, mislaid, poor strate- strategy, in his involvement in the peasants' wars and encouraging the slaughter. <sighs> Of thousands in the course of that. In his terrible, in, well, explainable but inexcusable, absolutely horrific, condemnable, anti Semitic writings late in his life. <laughs> um, in addition to that, his marital counsel that he gave Philip of Hesse at one point. Hey, if things aren't working out with her, get a second wife and don't tell anybody. This is all true. This is documented. This is part of Luther's life. This is part of his story. His crudeness. His obscene language. All of this. All of this. Luther knew this of himself. He was no prize. He knew this. He, he wrote, uh, I think this is your first quote. I'm going to be doing most of these in your quotes and notes. The one at the very top. He, he wrote of himself this, and reflecting years later. We should... Preach the word, but the results must be left solely to God's good pleasure. I opposed indulgences in all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. I did nothing. The word did nothing. Everything. God, over the course of the ages, has shown His determination and delight to work in and through the most unlikely of means. Josiah, Luther, nothing's changed and you and me you understand the significance of this reality his determination and delight to work in and through the most unlikely means people like us so you mean you know what this means as you think back on your story it doesn't matter at all where you've come from It doesn't matter at all what you've done. He delights to take up and work in and through the most unlikely means. People like you and me. That's the way he does it. That's the way he's always done it. the recovery of the scriptures you see that, that just that, uh, that that process that event that that thing that 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 corpus the yeah the, the, the his the recovery of the scriptures the means by which we see that in Josiah's day and in Luther's takes us here takes us here how this this that the recovery it ought to be gladly gladly received as the gift of grace that it is just in the means by which he does it the way it goes about it that's the first thing the second thing which flows from that and that is the news itself so this is the recovery comes about through his means the recovery comes about to lift up to as the recovery of the news of so what is the content of of the news of the proclamation it's it's the gospel it's the glorious great good news of god's transforming grace that's that's the news he is determined and delighted to recover that for, uh, so let's think about, so back to Josiah. What was discovered? So, in the course of Josiah's reformation in his own day, if you will, uh, you have the destruction of altars and idols and poles and all kinds of different things, uh, the desecration of, of all of that, rightly so, and the repair of the temple. And the reinstatement of the, 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 the worship uh, system there. And what else comes about? What is discovered? What is recovered in the midst of all of this and through the court? Remember what we saw is verse 14. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Now, what was this? Likely. It is the scroll, what we would call today the book of Deuteronomy, or at the very least a substantial portion of the, uh, the book of Deuteronomy. Now, how on earth was it lost? That might be worth thinking about for a minute. Well, oh my goodness, through generations of the neglect of the kings. This is like you know the, the, the big family Bible that's got layers of dust on it, taking that way, way beyond that, of course. But it's it's through the neglect of the kings that were in, the, the idea was that they were to lead and rule the people and and what life lived as a nation as a people before the watching world the neglect of that and the apostasy of the people so the neglect of the book and the apostasy of the people that's how it's lost well, what did it contain this book this book of the law that Hilkiah comes with the book. What's in the book? What's the message? What do they learn? What do we we hear? Well, you get a sense of that in uh, Josiah's response uh, there in verse 19. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And then skipping down to verse 21, the proclamation he makes. Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So certainly, a partial answer, a partial picture of what this book, what this message was that that King Josiah is hearing, that Hilkiah has recovered, is a message of judgment and the discipline of God's people. But I say that's a partial answer, because there's a fuller answer. The whole of Deuteronomy speaks a bit more than just to that. And the whole of the scriptures speak a little bit more than just about the the the, the discipline of the Lord at times of His people. Yes, this is a statement. This is a throwing down the gauntlet, a clarion call because of a warning, but also astonished wonder. You see, the story of God with His people is not about their initiative with Him or our initiative with Him. But his initiative with us, his stepping towards us, his moving towards us, that's the fuller story of Deuteronomy and the whole of the Bible. Their response, our response, from the start is meant to be, to his initiative, his moving towards us, is meant to be that of faith and obedience. That's the intended response. Well, in this case, in this context, for generations, that had not been the response But God, in His love, refuses to disengage. His covenant, His bond, His love for His people is this. Oh, no, no, no. I'm moving in. I am fully engaging with you. I am not letting you go. And it's going to hurt. But I love you so much, I am pursuing you. That is the whole picture here of what Josiah has just heard in the reading of the book of the Lord found in the house of God. It's the greater message, the good news of God's great love. That's the very message that transformed Martin Luther centuries later. Centuries later. Later, This is the question of salvation, keeping in mind his training as a Roman Catholic monk and priest. The teaching that he had imbibed and was conveying for so long that had crippled him and caused him so much anxiety and worry and distress deep within his soul was that this idea that our problem before the true and living God is chiefly one of demerits. It's a balance column. Our problem is chiefly that of demerits. So that's the problem. What's the solution? If your problem are, are demerits, if that's the, the problem, what's the solution? Merits. Right? So then the idea is you live a life, a good life of good works. It's the gospel of good works, it's a false gospel. But it's the gospel of good works. Merits meant to counterweigh the demerits. And that which you don't have time to clean up in this life, it's fine. We have a time for X number of years in purgatory to purge us of that which we haven't been able to take care of in this life. So was the teaching. So was the tradition. So it was said. So was the message from Rome. Into that, and despite that, and in the midst of that, Luther has what historians have referred to as the tower experience. Meaning it took place in his tower study. There's a whole lot that goes with that and what was the tower and what was in the tower. We know his study was in the tower. It's your second quote in your uh, quotes and notes there. Uh, This is uh, around the time, probably after, that he uh, nailed those 95 theses upon the Wittenberg door. This is what he wrote, reflecting back years later. As a monk, I led an irreproachable life. Nevertheless, I felt that I was a sinner before God. My conscience was restless, and I could not depend on God being propitiated by my satisfactions, meaning what he did. Not only did I not love, but I actually hated the righteous God who punished sinners. Thus a furious battle raged within my perplexed conscience. But meanwhile, I was knocking at the door of this particular Pauline passage, Romans 1, verse 17, earnestly seeking to know the mind of the great apostle. Day and night I tried to meditate upon the significance of these words. The righteousness of God is revealed in it. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And finally, God had mercy on me. And I began to understand that the righteousness of God is that gift of God by which a man lives, namely, faith. And that this sentence, the righteousness of God, is revealed in the gospel is passive, indicating that the merciful God justifies us by faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now I felt as though I had been reborn altogether and had entered paradise in the same moment, the face of the whole of Scripture became apparent to me. Luther referred to this in his writings, this idea of righteousness of God, not being something that we achieve, but something that we receive, not something that we earn, but something that is given, something that comes from outside us, not from us, but from outside us. He refers to this as an alien righteousness. That's not Star Trek. It's outside It's outside of us, given to us, credited to us before a holy God because of the righteousness of Jesus. In fact, it is the righteousness of Jesus, imputed. It's his righteousness, the alien righteousness, given, imputed to us. Now, that alien righteousness and and that tower experience, as it settled into his heart, set his heart free. And again, nothing's changed. There is still today, right now, for us, no better news. No better news to know that we can stand before God righteous in His sight and that being something that in no way is earned but is granted in no way is achieved or worked up by us, but is granted to us and is simply received by us as a gift from Him. There's, there's no better news. You have nothing to prove. There are no hoops to jump through. Truly as Jesus proclaimed on the cross, it is finished. It is finished. Again, this is why a recovery of the Scriptures, given what the message of the Scriptures are, is a gift of God's grace. And we should be oh so thankful. So thankful, so grateful for this. But that takes me to the third point. How does that come about? Right? So how does the recovery of the message, of the news, come? Through a recovery of the book. Through a recovery of the Word. Right? That's what you see playing itself out in Josiah's day, and really in many respects in Luther's day. as well. how can this good news be heard if the book is lost? So now we shift from a question of salvation to a question of authority. A question of truth. Even in Josiah's days, when you, when you think about what's happening there, it's, it's, a, it's a, a storm of competing ideas, a swirl of competing ideas. Multiple sources, multiple points of input. Political uh, and practical expediency. J- J- uh, Josiah, do this. This is the way to govern the kingdom. Like your forebearers did. Like Manasseh and Ammon. Practical, political. Think about that. Just, okay, you want to be spiritual, just religious forms. And, and not just because they're a little different. Let's think in terms of pluralism. Can we not? Can we not be a little bit more syncretistic and blending some things together, Josiah? Multiple inputs, multiple sources, and they're in terrible confusion. Who's to know? How can you know? Where's the plumb line? Where's the norm? Where's the standard? Who speaks over all this confusion? And into that mess, mix, mix, mess, I'm making up words, comes a clarion, singular voice as Hilkiah comes out with the book. A transcendent voice now speaks. A voice that is above all the, the din and confusion and folly of all the others, drowning them out because it's of a, it's source, it's a divine source. It's the book, it's the book of the Lord from the house of God to the people of God. And it is the word of God. And we still need this book. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Again, the recovery of that of the scriptures is a oh my goodness a gift of God's grace to us. Again, back to Luther. So it, it, as I was talking about the gospel of works, the gospel of you know and then the, the idea of purgatory to supplement what you don't have time in this life to take care of. Well, in the midst of that, the Roman Catholic Church came up with something else, something else that was meant to help the idea of indulgences. So the idea is that you could purchase something, earn something, a piece of paper, it's certified from Rome itself that would shave time off of time in purgatory, either for you or for your loved ones. And because of how that was presented and because of how that was done, it was an opportunity ripe for corruption and abuse. And Luther weighs in and speaks powerfully, dramatically, stridefully into all of that recognizing it was it was it was abused it was problematic because it was unbiblical and so there at the Diet of Worms in 1521 this is the stance that Luther takes it's the last year quotes in the quotes and notes page this is what he said some of his most famous and oft quoted words Unless I'm convinced by the testimony of the scriptures or by clear reason, for I do not trust either in the pope or in councils alone, since it is well known that they have often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound to the scriptures. I have quoted, I, scriptures I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and will not retract anything, since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. I cannot do otherwise. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Now Luther's commitment to the Scriptures before all other authorities was also uh, reflected in his commitment to the translation of the Scriptures given how important and how vital a role that they play in our lives. And so there in his time in the Vortburg Castle after he was kidnapped by friends after that last trial there in Worms and he spends ten months there and he spends, just pours his life into the translation of the original Greek into the people's German. And linguists will tell you, Luther's German Bible had more of an effect upon the German language and their culture than the King James did upon the English. All this was grounded in what the the Reformers came to describe as sola scriptura. The Bible alone is our ultimate source of authority and faith and in life. It alone is infallible. It alone is inerrant. It alone is... Is our chief authority. Now, why is that important? How is that relevant for us today? Because we are still bombarded by multiple different voices and messages. (sighs) Uh, Social media, blogs, music, film, the arts advertisements, the news, which is always from a certain vantage point. It's always, 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 always from a certain vantage point. We are bombarded by messages all the time. Everywhere we turn, everywhere we go. How can we weigh? How can we judge? How can we assess? Where's the norm? Where's the plumb line? How do we know? Who decides? Where do we go to get this? Sola Scriptura, the Bible alone, not saying that we therein reject the contributions of tradition or history, but we know its place. Not saying, though, that we lift up uh, the, the, um, the insights of personal opinion and feelings that's supposed to therein adjudicate all decisions, but rather we submit that to recognizing that we need community around us. We need gifted teachers in our lives. We we do not bow before Pope or council or guru or feelings. Sola Scriptura. The Bible alone. And the recovery of that is indeed A gift of God's grace. So let me just kind of end where we began. Why study Martin Luther? Two reasons. One, it's not hard to do it. He's really relatable. He really is. So many of the giants of church history, yeah, they're admirable. Luther's likable. We can relate to him. Let me get you just a couple things to, to point that out. I mean, his, when asked late in his life, Dr. Luther, which of your many works would you want to see endure and, and stand the test of time? He said, two. His classic, The Bondage of the Will, was one, and the other was his small catechism written for children. That's what he wanted his legacy to be. Uh, another thing. Was uh, I mentioned this in the last hour. The last re- written word that we have of him is the day before he died. A little something he scratched down on paper. And this is what he wrote. Let nobody suppose that he has tasted the Holy Scriptures sufficiently unless he has ruled over the churches with the prophets a hundred years. We are beggars. That is true. Okay, so he's Relatable. Here's a more important reason why it's worth studying Luther. And I mean this very, very seriously. Martin Luther was a gift of God to the people of God for the glory of God. Martin Luther was a gift of God for the people of God, the glory of God. We therein owe gratitude and thanksgiving to the giver of the gift. We are not venerating the saints. We are revering our Lord by admiring what He's done through His servant, just as we should through any, 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 any of His servants. And frankly, it would be dishonoring to go the other way. Recovery of the Scriptures is a gift of God's grace to us still today. It always has been and always will be. We see that through this man. May we gladly receive it. The scriptures. The scriptures. Let's pray. And close.